Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll take one final look at the Biden-McCarthy debt limit suspension and spending deal, which now has a score from the Congressional Budget Office. The CBO found that the bill would shave $1.5 trillion off of the $20 trillion in projected deficits over the next 10 years, while it also suspends the debt limit through January 1st of 2025. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson will join me in unpacking the CBO score, warning it has some hard-to-follow procedural provisions and some hard-to-pin-down side deals. But before we get into the, all that, We'll get back to some real policy by looking at a comprehensive report by the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. The report was released late last year, and it concluded that economic disparity and the lack of good opportunities for all Americans are challenges that have an impact on nearly every facet of our society. Our guest to discuss the committee's recommendations is a familiar voice on Facing the Future. She is the economist mom, Diane Lim. And if you're wondering why we haven't heard from her in a while, it's because she was serving as the committee's majority staff policy director. Tori Gorman joins us for the conversation. Diana, first, I just wanted to ask you, how did this select committee come about and uh, what were its main objectives? Well, so the select committee is... um, uh, it was a House Select Committee that was created by former Speaker Nancy Pelosi um, for the last session of Congress, the 117th Congress, and it was designed to um, to focus specifically on the extent of and the nature of economic disparity, meaning inequality in as we see it, inequality in outcomes, but especially um, in terms of inequality and outcome because of disparity in opportunity, economic opportunity. And um, I should say that the the full name of the select committee was the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. And so that very long name was designed to to uh, be accurately reflect the mission of the committee, which was not just to study economic disparity and the the causes, the nature of the root causes, but also to come up with, um, to learn about what kinds of existing policies and programs serve as barriers to equal economic opportunity and uh, to recommend some policies and programs, some changes to federal policy and to state and local and some private practice um, uh, practices, changes that could c- promote greater fairness and growth, what economists sometimes call inclusive economic growth. So um, it was Pelosi tasks us with 
studying things like through hearings, through actual like kind of book study. And we did a lot. I had a policy team that did a lot of kind of academic research on literature review on these um, issues and um, to learn from experts, but also to learn from real people's experiences um, what some of the challenges are currently in our policies and programs and therefore what um what can we do to reduce those those challenges to reduce those disparities um and she also tasks us pelosi said and i want you to come up with ideas that could pass a bi- could pass in a bipartisan manner that are not just democratic ideas and are not just supported by by democrats and I think so. She intentionally appointed as the chair of uh, the select committee, Jim Himes, who's a rather moderate Democrat from Connecticut, rather than appointing one of the more liberal uh, Democratic members of the committee. For example, Pramila Jayapal and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were two Democratic members on our committee, very liberal leaning. So I think Pelosi intentionally said, I want someone to lead this committee who can work well with Republicans and kind of promote some of the more centrist ideas that could have a better chance of getting bipartisan support. Yeah, I wanted to uh, and I I, want to get back to that uh, point specifically, but uh, you know, the, the, the report has many, many recommendations in it. Some of them are very familiar topics that uh, were debated last year. Uh, childhood, uh, edu- you know, pre- universal pre-K, free community college, child care subsidies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them were more, I'd say, difficult to tackle, more difficult to quantify just this, the, you know, the whole area of unequal opportunity and and the, the the geography of, of oh, that is, right. is really there are some so there are some sort of familiarities and some that you were, seem to be breaking new ground and so I, I just want to ask you there are certain parts of this report that you are particularly proud of that you mm-hmm. you think well, there was really some groundbreaking work that went into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that um, the challenge of talking about unequal opportunity is that you cannot observe things that didn't happen because those opportunities were missed, right? Um, we only observe in economic data um, things that were actually activity that actually happened. And uh, so unfortunately, we observe um, the most successful parts of our economy in the data, right? The people that already have jobs that who are already earning high income. I always talk about how when you look at GDP data, when you think about it, um, we are overrepresenting uh, the the richest, most successful people in the economy. Right? They get a much bigger weight in GDP. Uh, people who aren't working, <laughs> they get a zero weight in GDP. And so, relying on a measure, an aggregate measure like GDP, to figure out the health of the economy is mm-hmm. not really looking at the parts of the economy that are in most need of support to live up to their potential. And so, the big challenge in our committee's work was how are we going to prove this case where we don't have data because you can't measure that which hasn't happened yet, right? <laughs> you can't 
so so that to me is a fundamental challenge of not just our committee's work, but the entire economics profession has this challenge is that we are used to using data to support our theories and to drive our policy recommendations. And yet there is inadequate data on um people's struggles at the ground level, person by person, in terms of why are they not going to work? Do they have a job opportunity? Do they have a way to get to work? You know, do they have someone to care for their children while they go to work? I mean, these things, we don't ask people, why didn't you do this? You know, we sometimes in our survey, in our official survey data, we sometimes ask them about what they are doing, like the you know, the job they have, what industry do you work in? What is your occupation? What are your hours? What is your, what are your wages? But we don't ask people, why aren't you working? You know, um, so, so the fact is that um, we try to look at it from a more realistic person level perspective. But what that meant was often we were relying on in our research, not academic literature um, that was based on um, official economic statistics, but we were often relying on uh, stories by journalists or our visits to different um, for different field hearings to different parts of the country to actually interview people and ask them their own personal story in terms of how are they struggling in terms of finding childcare, in terms of finding a job, in terms of getting training, in terms of getting healthcare and getting uh, support for getting a place to live, you know, getting community services. So we discovered all these areas that are in, in desperate need for more government support. Like this is what government should be doing is, you know, uh, supporting public goods. And there's no bigger public good than untapped human potential, in my opinion. And so um, the problem is we can't see it in the data. We had to actually talk to people. And that is also something economists are not used to doing. Gee, fortunately, you had some experience that with the Concord Coalition. <laughs> exactly. So the Concord Coalition gave me, you know, it. It my experience of the Concord Coalition gave me so much insight and and so much, um, you know. For me, I'm very mission driven now in this area of economic disparity and economic opportunity. And I think a lot of it comes from my years of experience working with the Concord Coalition, even before I officially worked for the Concord Coalition when I was at Brookings and working on the fiscal wake up tour. I mean, you just learn so much talking to real people you know, in real places and getting outside the beltway. And I honestly think that in terms of, you know, maximizing our country's economic potential, uh, politicians really need to get out of the beltway and talk to real people and not just talk to people in their home districts. You know, our committee members learned so much and they um, they were agreeing with each other and thinking we got to do something about this um, a lot more when we would travel outside of D.C. and uh, go for field hearings. We went to Lorain, Ohio, which is where Marcy captors from. And they're, you know, an old kind of steel belt kind of company manufacturing town. Um, we went to uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin to talk about housing issues. Um, that's where Gwen Moore, Representative Gwen, Gwen Moore is from. We went to um, 
Silicon Valley, which is not where Sarah Jacobs is from. Sarah Jacobs uh, represents San Diego area, but she really wanted to focus on the tech sector and what automation and artificial intelligence is doing to the value of human work. You know, how is it disrupting um, human work? Um, we went to uh, Texas to um, near the border and uh, that's where Vicente Gonzalez's district is. So I'm naming all of our Democratic members that um, picked places they wanted to go to. So we went to his district and talked about infrastructure issues there because in that part of Texas, physical infrastructure um, is challenging and it prevents access to economic opportunity when you don't have adequate you know, water and uh, internet. And so, so we were, we went to these different places in order to um, basically understand at a ground level, talking to community people, real people, Concord Coalition style, kind of town hall like, but we called them field hearings, but it really ended up feeling like we, um, like town halls to a large extent, because we'd always have question and answers with, with the audience, um, even though we did have a panel of people testifying. We just learned a lot from the ground level perspective. And it's a strategy that I think more policy people, economic policy people, including the politicians here in D.C., should follow. Tori. We've had a a long running conversation, I think, here in the United States about growing uh, income disparities. And and, and your your report talks largely about, uh, you know, how the wealthier getting wealthier the wealthier getting wealthier because of their access to the capital markets a lot of wealthy people you know are paid in in stock options those stock options you know go through the, they, their value goes to the roof they cash them in and suddenly you know you go from somebody who's earning $100,000 a year to $600 billion a year for example <laughs> sort of thing you know it's like instant wealth yeah. um but i think another thing that was really interesting that there isn't enough discussion of is the role of declining mobility between classes of income. You know, it's just, I take my case in particular, it's just sheer dumb luck that I was born into a family where my mother was an accountant, my father was an officer in the Marine Corps. I had a really stable, you know, my family had a very stable income and our two, we had two sets of grandparents who also had, you know, stable income. That I did nothing to get to earn that status. I was born into it. It was sheer luck. And a lot of, you know, the Americans, we pride ourselves on saying, you know, hey, if you're you know born poor, there are opportunities for you to rise up and succeed, you know, that that and that's not so much the case anymore. Right. The ability right. to move beyond the consequences, the economic consequences of your birth are harder, if not next to impossible. Is that that's what I was reading from your report? Right. So, you know, in our report, one of the things we recommended was to strengthen this what what some people call the social safety net, which um, apparently has a negative connotation with some people. When you talk about it as a safety net, really, it should be considered like a ladder or a leg up in a lot of cases um, when economic security is is tenuous. Um, any small mini crisis at a personal level, like a health crisis, right, or um, job loss, um, it's it disrupts your whole path out of you know poverty, um, and so the safety net programs that government provides 
are not just important to get people over the rough patches, but they're actually critical to keeping people on an upward path. Because, you know, my mother used to just say, oh, all it takes is money. Uh, it's like it's like it takes money to make money, right? You mm-hmm. need you need a cushion. There's no way um, that um, you can handle something like the pandemic where kids were suddenly having to take school from home mm-hmm. and parents couldn't just go to keep going with their work unless they were allowed to work from home. You think about like the pandemic and how most jobs that allowed people to continue to work from home were higher paying jobs, white collar jobs. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of women um, during the pandemic were forced to stay at home and out of work. And that means a loss of income came about, a big loss of income came about um, because of an external, you know, crisis. And if you don't have the cushion, if you don't Mm -hmm. have money in the bank to be able to weather that, um, if you can't, if you've never worked a job where it would allow for remote work, the kind of job work that allows you to work from anywhere, um, you know, so it's very easy to see how having starting out at an advantaged position, mm-hmm. it's like starting from a better baseline. Mm-hmm. It it always is going to, you're never going to catch up if you're someone who didn't start from that higher baseline, mm-hmm. right? You're never going to catch up because it's it compounds over right. time, right? It compounds over time. The advantages compound over mm-hmm. time. It takes, you know, your access to a good education and to a good home to be able to go to school and to get a good job and to get the kind of job that allows you more flexibility in your work, right? And mm-hmm. allows you to afford childcare for your children and allows you to, you know, be able to buy a house and save more money and invest in your retirement. So all these things, it's sort of, I think of it as a compound, compounding advantage that people don't start out on equal footing. It's like, you know, a lot of people started from, you know, a race from way, way far behind, <laughs> right? In a career. Yeah. way way because you 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 start you're you start in a slow paced corral in a re- running race and yet all the people at the front that get that head start you know everyone is helping them along handing them water along the way cheering and then and then somehow the people that get stuck in the back corrals over the race obstacles get thrown in their way oh my god a tree just fell down across the path you know i just feel like I feel like the that that advantage compounds over time and that for the people left behind, any little thing can trip them off and and throw them off course. And that's yeah. the problem. So Bob's a big baseball fan. So I was going to use a, a baseball, a baseball analogy, yeah. metaphor. And it's like, you know, some people start, you know, at, at home plate and have to bat. You know, I feel like, you know, in my upgrading, I started at third base. You know, I was born on third base. And so it's a lot easier for me to get to you know score a run because I started from third base. And, you know, some people just have extraordinary difficulties just getting to first base. That's right. I I feel like there's this attitude that that that, you know, low income individuals are are lazy or they just don't want to work or they make poor decisions. It's not a lot of times it's because they had to start at home plate while the rest of us got to start, you know, at second or third base. Yeah, that's right. I like the baseball analogy. Maybe <laughs> okay. We can think of some more. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
Tori Gorman and I are discussing recommendations from the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth with Diane Lim, who was the Majority Staff Policy Director for the committee. And of course, is our our economist mom from, from days gone by. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are discussing recommendations from the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth with Diane Lim, Majority Staff Policy Director for the committee. Um, Diane, you mentioned in our first segment that there was uh, a, a feeling, a hope to, to do some of these recommendations on a bipartisan basis because they do deal with areas that I think there's some recognition need to be dealt with, with maybe different uh, ideas on how to do that. But uh, were there some areas that uh, seem to have more potential for bipartisan legislation than others? Yes. So, um, you know, we held um, kind of our our biggest hearings um, on areas that we thought were the biggest, basically they had the most potential to find bipartisan agreement and to find actual policy recommendations that everyone or most of the people on our committee would be able to support. Um, we had a r- wide range of ideologies on our committee from the most liberal members being Pramila Jayapal and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on our side and conservatives like um, Byron Donalds and uh, uh, Jody uh, Arrington and Warren Davidson on the Republican side. Um, and so um, I think the um, Pelosi and um, Leader McCarthy actually uh, chose chair a chairman and a ranking member rather intentionally that were more centrist. So the chairman was Jim Himes, who's a moderate Democrat from um, from Connecticut. And the ranking member was um, was uh, Brian Stile, who is, I think, a rather moderate Republican from Wisconsin, from Paul Ryan's old district. So um, I think that was intentional because there was this hope that um, that Himes and Style, the chairman and the ranking member, would be able to work together well. They actually got along extremely well. They were like total buddies the whole year and a half. They, you know, they would drink together. They would hang out together. So um they really liked each other and um, they really um, were trying to to do the work in as bipartisan a way as possible. Um, and to be honest, when we had trouble coming to bipartisan agreement, it was usually because um, we were getting direction from party leadership that we were agreeing too much. OK, <laughs> so like that they don't. Like, for example, they didn't want any of the Republican members to actually sign off on anything that would that might raise revenue. But OK, so we'll get to that later. The areas of agreement, you know, there was very early indication that all members were going to support an emphasis on investing more in children in our federal policy because, 
it was very obvious to everyone that the federal government tends to subsidize older people things more than younger people things. And that Mm -hmm. when you're talking about economic potential, gee, maybe we should start with the younger people since they're the ones that are going to eventually go to work and, you know, be the productive members of our economy. So people investing in people in general as a strategy, especially young people was a was something we wanted to pursue and recommend. And then another area of bipartisan agreement, which turned out to come into law, was an infrastructure, more investment in physical infrastructure, especially physical infrastructure that very obviously connects to economic opportunity. Like that, you know, you need good transportation to get to work. You need broadband access to get online. And, you know, that all these things that are important in terms of, um, getting people, connecting people to the to economic opportunities. Um, so those were the areas. So in terms of investing in children, we had, you know, very strong support for um, universal pre-K, mm-hmm. strong support for paid family leave. Um, and um, also there was a, a great recognition of how messed up the child care market is. It's how the child care market is, a great example of an economic market failure because, you know, the costs are too high for families to afford. And yet the pay for child care workers is too low for you to be able to support your own family. So the fact that there's this mismatch between very high costs and very low wages in the child care industry is screaming for a role for government to provide the wedge. You know, you have to connect the two, just like a tax drives a wedge between makes consumer prices higher than the prices producers receive, um, uh, you know, uh, an industry that has very high costs and very low wages is the the cure from an, a government perspective is a subsidy that brings together, brings up wages and brings down costs to consumers. And so there was very strong recognition that, yeah, this market is not a normal functioning, well-functioning, competitive um, uh, labor market or product market, service market. And so um, the, the, the sticky part with all these ideas, like all these are great ideas. Like they would all say, yes, that's great. Yes, that's great. As long as we didn't, don't have to pay for it until you get to the part like, well, we can't just, you know, yes, all it takes is money. We should just, you know, we should just, print more money and spend on all this stuff. Um, If, if, if until it came to costs, anything that would be a a tax increase or a spending um, cut, that's where there would be someone for every pay for that would oppose it. So that was the challenge in our work was that it was easy to come up with ideas that were very broad and general in concept. It was easy to make members, all the members see, yeah, this is wrong. We should do something about it. But when you get more specific, as you guys know from the Concord Coalition work, it's easy to agree on the big nature of the problem. It's easy to agree on general vague solutions. But then when you get down to specifics, like who would benefit exactly and who would pay the cost, then it gets thorny and then it then the members of Congress tend to think that, you know, once they have to talk about winners and losers, that's when it gets tricky. They don't they don't want to talk about losers. Tori. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to throw in an editorial comment before I, I add my next question. And, and I'll say this as a former Republican staffer, 16 years <laughs> working for Republicans in the Senate. The fact that we do not have universal pre-K is an abomination to me. It is such an easy, easy solution to a tough, tough problem. And if we can subsidize oil and gas exploration, <laughs> if we can subsidize ethanol, why can't we subsidize children? I mean, we Yay, as a nation, Tori. I think we should grow children as Grow a priority children, over yes. growing corn. Okay. Yes. I mean, they're both important, but I would place growing children above growing corn. Um, yes. If we invested more in our children, perhaps we would be able to invest less in them as yes. citizens because they will have prepared for us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Republicans, if you're listening to me, get on board with subsidizing universal pre-K. Now, going to the question about winners and losers. Um, Obviously, this last debate on the debt limit demonstrated that neither party is really, truly interested in cutting spending. I mean, let's be honest. OK, that's what that, right. that debate revealed. I wrote a blog a couple of months ago about how we're going to need a bigger boat just to solve the promises that we've already made in our right. current entitlement structure, you know, to be able to afford the promises. that we have. And what I mean by bigger boat, we're going to need more revenue. More. OK, we're, yeah. it's just a simple fact. There's not enough money in the budget to cut elsewhere to afford all the promises right. that we've made. And if we want to invest in our children, if we want to invest in our future, okay, we're going to need a bigger boat. We need more revenue. But the question always comes to, you know, how do you raise more revenue without harming economic growth, right? Everybody always says there's a trade-off between, you know, in, in to add a new revenue and yeah. productivity, economic growth. Yeah. So how did your committee took a look at that? You know, yeah. what, what what are some some ideas about raising revenue that are less distortionary than just raising income tax rates? Well, okay, these are not at all new ideas, but mm -hmm. um, broadening the tax base, which means instead of instead of just looking at the existing uh, tax base and the rate structure and raising rates. Let's first look at the holes in our tax base. Like, why do we not have um, a comprehensive income tax base? And that is mostly because we have these things called tax expenditures, which are not tax rate cuts, they're base cuts. They're cutting holes in the tax base. Um, if you look at the personal, the individual income tax system, um, most of the tax expenditures are those, the great bulk of the tax expenditures are actually those that only go to um, higher income households because they're the kinds of tax expenditures that only if you owe federal income taxes would you benefit from these tax subsidies, these holes in the tax base. Um, so as Bob knows, I've always advocated for um, getting uh getting actually personally, I would get rid of most tax expenditures, but um, um, I would um, at least pare back some of the most expensive tax expenditures. The very most expensive is, of course, um, the exclusion of employer-provided health care, um, which is a very politically sticky one for members. Um, but then there are itemized deductions, like the deductions for mortgage interest and uh, state and local taxes and um uh, charitable contributions um, that are um, that disproportionately go to high-income households that subsidize 
those activities at a higher rate, the higher your tax bracket. And um, so for every dollar that you spend on charitable contributions, you get a bigger percentage discount, the higher your income is. So um, those are the kinds of ways that economists know this. You just, um, they're inefficient ways of, uh, of losing revenue. And so there are ways that you can raise revenue without distorting economic activity. You mentioned oil and gas subsidies, Tori, like mm-hmm. we do a lot of that through the tax system. Mm-hmm. So um, that's an example of like, you know, there's a lot of money we spend on these tax expenditures, both on the corporate income tax and the individual income tax, and they're not producing economic growth. They're certainly not broadening the tax base. And um, the the surest way to raise more revenue is to have more workers and more economic activity. And the surest way to do that is make it cheaper for people to actually have children. Preach. Broaden the base and lower the rates. That's yeah. yeah. It's a long held well, economist yeah, point I of mean, view. But yeah, Tori uh, and uh, Diane, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm afraid we've we've reached our limit for uh, for this segment. Um Diane, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, discussing the work of the House Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth, a very comprehensive report that's uh, well worth reading. Diane, is there some place that people can access that? I still have my own blog website, economistmom.com, where I put a link to the House published version that's online. It's a very comprehensive. It's um, really well worth reading. And, uh, and, and thanks for your insights. Uh, Tori and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And uh, in this segment, Tori Gorman and I are going to discuss the official scoring of the uh, Biden-McCarthy deal from the CBO. And we're going to be joined by Chief Economist Steve Robinson. You've heard us talk a lot about the, uh, the, the bipartisan debt limit spending reduction deal. We talked a little bit about the scoring last week, but we were just speculating. So now we actually have the numbers. And uh, I don't think we were far wrong, actually. But there are some anomalies, uh, some oddities in the uh, scoring. And Tori went through some of them in a, in a blog last week. Uh, so I thought we should uh, review the CBO score now that we actually have their numbers. The bottom line was it said it would shave $1.5 trillion, and that sounds like a lot, until you have the rest of the story, which is off of the projected $20 trillion of mm-hmm. uh, added deficits over the next 10 years. So, Tori, you really did a deep dive into the uh, scoring. Were there things that stood out to you? The p- compromise legislation would uh, reduce uh, future deficits by $1.5 trillion over the next decade. Um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, there are basically two provisions that con- contribute the bulk of those savings. The first is the cap deal. So Republicans and Democrats agreed to caps on discretionary spending for fiscal year 2024, which starts in October, and for fiscal year 2025. And those caps generate about $1.3 trillion in savings. Um, it might sound a little odd how caps in just two years can save that much money over 10 years. Uh, and the reason that happens is because of the way CBO estimates the effects of those caps 
on years beyond 24 and 25. So they're saying, hey, if 24 is low and 25 is low, then 26 through 33 are going to be lower as well because of you're starting from a, a lower base. So that's where the 1.3 trillion comes from. And then the other 200 million, uh, 200 billion um, comes from net interest savings. So if the deficits are going to be smaller over the next 10 years, then that also means we're going to have to issue less debt, which also means that we're going to have to pay less interest. And CBO calculates that if those spending caps are adhered to and they follow the trajectory in their baseline, that the federal government will save about $188 billion or $200 billion in net interest over the next 10 years. So you smash those two together and that's what you find. Um, the interesting thing is some of the other things that other savers um, that were included in the legislation weren't savers at all. Segue to Steve, because I know when we were talking about this before, there were increased uh, work requirements on some people, but added on some of the social safety net programs. And uh, but they were added eligibility in other areas. And I, I remember you saying you weren't sh quite sure how that would uh, offset one another. How did how did it work out? Just a, a quick review. There there are requirements for the what's called the TANF program, temporary assistance for needy families and the SNAP program, which is Food Assistance Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Anyway, those two programs for you know childless, able-bodied adults, you're required to work a certain amount of time in exchange for benefits. And the current law requires uh, that you work between the ages of 18 and 49. And the, the new debt limit bill increased the age requirement up to age 54. So you added ages basically 50 through 54. So clearly you were expanding the number of individuals eligible for work requirements, uh, which is what the Republicans had been pushing. The Democrats were resisting and as a compromise, they said, well, we'll agree to expanding the age eligibility if you exempt veterans, homeless individuals, and young adults who have aged out of foster care. And it turns out, according to the Congressional Budget Office's estimates, that the increased age eligibility, uh, requ age work requirements by age, saves less money than exempting veterans, homeless, and foster care youth. And so <laughs> the net effect, according to CBO, is it will actually spend $2 billion more roughly over the next 10 years. So yeah, it worked out that uh, there, there were really were no, no net savings as a result of the policy changes. So what was uh, supposed to be a saver is actually a spender. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and not by very much. Now, of course, if you're affected by it, it is a big deal, of course. But uh, we're talking about in the in the grand scheme of the federal budget. Steve, were there anything else, uh, any other provisions that uh, struck you as being important? I think as Tori pointed out, I mean, there there really is only one thing that saved a lot of money and that was the discretionary caps. And of course, you save interest as a result of spending less on discretionary. You know, there were other a handful of provisions that, you know, were, were good talking points that a lot of people had a lot of interest in, but it, it's virtually impossible. I mean, you know, the, the regulatory PAYGO uh, is one of the provisions we talked about last week. There's a couple of provisions of current law. There's what's called the Congressional Review Act and this new, what they call regulatory PAYGO. It actually is similar to something the Office of Management and Budget had proposed back in 2005, 
And this was purely an administrative action under the Bush administration. But the idea was that when agencies issue rules that increase spending, you would require those agencies to identify offsetting savings. And, you know, that didn't last very long under under the Bush administration. And this was an effort to sort of revive that. But it's only temporary. It only goes through, uh, I think, the end of next year. And so it's, you know, it may give us sort of a pilot project trial run look at what the potential for this kind of thing would be. But if, you know, if it turns out to be, you know, have any substance to it, Congress is going to have to extend it. Otherwise, it's going to expire. Yeah. And the other thing is it it does include a waiver. So uh, there is the the possibility that, um, you know, for something that OMB considers particularly important, they could waive that. And it strikes me that that uh, would often be the case, that if they were going to do something that they thought they should spend money on, they would think it was particularly important. <laughs> and they'll simply waive the requirement. Yeah. Yeah. So but we'll see. It's a good thing. Tori, can you explain what went on with the IRS funding? I think that was one of the most confusing aspects of this whole thing. <laughs> This is this is one where I think Republicans were sort of penny wise, pound foolish politically. Um, so what the Republicans. So last year, Democrats passed this pretty significant uh, reconciliation bill that made all kinds of investments in green energy and and other things. But one of the things it also did was that it gave the IRS 80 billion dollars over the next 10 years to you know upgrade their computer systems. I mean, they're still working with DOS and floppy disks and stuff like that. So, you know, to to invest in necessary technology upgrades, but also to to hire more auditors. Um, They simply just don't have enough uh, skilled auditors to audit tax returns when you look at, you know, big big corporations, but also super wealthy individuals who have tax returns that are, you know, hundreds of pages long. Um, So, you know, Republicans by by ideology, uh, don't like the idea of raising revenue, right? And uh, largely along the lines of tax increases. They hate supporting tax increases. I, I, I can understand that. Nobody likes to pay more taxes. Um, but one of the easiest ways to generate and collect revenue is to collect the revenue that's already owed. Okay, so let's 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 in, in, endow the IRS with the ability to collect the revenue that's already owed. But Republicans were so upset over this, what I'm calling a bolus of 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 money for the IRS last year. They absolutely insisted on rescinding a portion of that money in this debt limit uh, negotiation, this this bipartisan negotiation between Biden and, and McCarthy. And at the end of the day, they ended up. Uh, in in the legislation itself, you know, rescinding about one point four billion dollars from the IRS for for next year. But when CBO took a look at that estimate, they said, yeah, rescinding one point four billion from the IRS budget is going to reduce spending. But it also means that the IRS is going to be able to collect less revenue. And by the way, they're probably going to be able to collect two point three billion less revenue. So this provision is actually going to increase the deficit you know, by about $900 million. So it was it was hilarious to me in that, you know, Republicans were trying to make a political point with their base by saying, hey, we're cutting the IRS. Everybody hates the IRS. Let's, let's you know, let's decap them. Uh, and in the end, you know, they're so concerned about the deficit and the, you know, this trajectory of future deficits, they ended up at their insistence, including a proposal that would actually increase the deficit. And I'm just like, you know, you just want to, bang your head 
against the wall. (laughs) I mean, so that's two of the big initiatives, the IRS funding and the work requirements that they Mm -hmm. got. And they ended up in the score having increased the deficit by small amounts. But I mean, but what I mean, there was some side deal about 10 billion and 20 billion and something. I mean, the Democrats are going to reprogram some of that IRS money. because This was outside of the scope of the legislation, but apparently and this is this is hearsay. I've not seen any paperwork. It's been reported, but there hasn't been any links in those reporting to uh, any any paperwork on this. But apparently there is a side deal uh, whereby Democrats are going to agree over the next, I think, two years where we have the spending caps in place. They're going to agree to rescind 20 billion of that IRS money um, and then redeploy it elsewhere in the non-discretionary or excuse me, non-defense discretionary side. Uh, if you go back to the provisions on the spending caps, you know, they, they divide discretionary spending into two buckets, defense and non-defense. Defense gets a little bit of a bump in 24, 3%. Um, non-defense actually gets a haircut. Uh, but the idea being that, okay, Democrats agreed to rescind some of this IRS money so they can then take that spending and redeploy it elsewhere in the non-defense so it doesn't look like non-defense gets a, a cut in 2024, 2025. Well, we'll have to leave it there uh, and keep following the twists and turns as this bill is implemented. But that's all we, the time we have for this week. Thanks, Tori and Steve, for taking uh, one final look at the Biden-McCarthy deal. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I will be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 